Hey there. As we put this episode together, we're all less than a week from a big, stressful election. And meanwhile, the COVID pandemic is ramping up in kind of a scary way. Wow. It may not be a bad time for a little bucking up and just a really fun story. So this is possibly my favorite David versus Goliath story we've ever done. Jeffrey Fox got an outrageous bill for a simple test, and he said to his wife, no way am I paying this. He went to small claims court all by himself, no lawyer, fighting the University of California, which operates UCLA Hospital, and he won. Because the thing is, small claims court is kind of his home turf. He's done this a bunch of times, and he's beaten other Goliaths there. You know, I sued Microsoft. I mean, a lot of them related to my business, and I won every single one of them. And not just Goliaths. I sued a computer company for $65. <laughs> and I told them, I said, you're going to end up paying me 150 once the court costs are added. Now, I didn't take a day to drive down to court for $65. I happened to actually have other cases there. <laughs> and for any given case, he says the actual money at stake isn't the main thing. He's thinking long term. The point is getting better at, well, at at standing up for himself. I did it just for the experience again and again, suing companies, seeing how they react so that if the bigger cases come, I've got that much more experience because every time you go into that court, you, you watch the other cases, you hear the judge say different things. You could say it's like how some people do Ironman triathlons or all their own home repairs, whatever. Like there's an appetite to rise to a challenge, keep learning, get a little stronger, more self-sufficient all the time. Some people bake super elaborate pastries. Jeffrey Fox defends his rights in small claims court. But it's not just a hobby. For one thing, there's usually real money at stake and he wins. And for another, he says he doesn't do this only for himself. And I like to do it so that I, I have a, a foundation on which to be able to encourage others to learn how to do it and do the same thing. Oh, yes, please. This is An Arm and a Leg, a show about the cost of healthcare. My name is Dan Weissman. I'm a reporter and I like a challenge. So my job is to take one of the most enraging, terrifying, depressing aspects of American life. And yeah, 2020 is still keeping the competition for the top spots pretty fierce, but what the heck, I'm still claiming it, and produce a show that is entertaining, empowering, and useful. And I'm definitely leaning into the useful part these days. This show is a school for financial self-defense, and today we are going to learn some moves from Jeffrey Fox. It's worth asking, what's the recipe for a guy like this? Well, if you look at his actual career, you get a big clue. You'll see a super independent streak and the confidence to take on things most people wouldn't do. His first job out of college, he played poker for a living. One day I just kind of sat at the table and here's my 21-year-old ego. And I thought, am I really willing to, to think that I can't outsmart all these people? He knew he was good at math, but it wasn't all ego. He worked at it, studied the odds, studied the psychology, and he tested it out. And it worked, which was a big rush at first. When you're 21, your friends are like, oh, that's so cool. Because they're getting jobs, right? And they're starting to work. And they're the <laughs> lowest rung of there. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm, I'm a poker player. And they're like, that's so cool. You can do whatever you want. But, you know, by the time you're 24, they're like, so um, are you, you're just going to play poker your whole life? <laughs> and who, how do you have a good answer for that? 
Especially because day to day, he did not really feel like he was living the dream. It's not a healthy lifestyle. You're up at all hours of the night. And it's not the steadiest income, even for the best players. I mean, there's luck involved. Otherwise, the bad players wouldn't ever find it satisfying. If they never had a winning session once in a while, they'd stop showing up. One day, a friend asked him if he wanted to learn to build a computer just for fun. He was like, sure. Next thing he knew, he was doing little computer jobs for people and liking it. It was amazing to go to somebody's house and and do a little work for him. And I earned, I don't know, like $45. But it was nice that he just gave it to me and I wasn't at risk of losing $45, you know. (laughs) I couldn't go to someone's house and replace a CD drive. It was like, boom, you lost 100 bucks. That was more than 20 years ago. His business has been through some ups and downs, but he's an independent IT consultant. Been in the same one-person office for a long time long time. So that is a big independent streak. A lot of teach yourself to do it yourself. That's one big element. And then there's this, the influence of his dad, who died when Jeff was 20. My dad shaped me even, even, you know, in just 20 years. For one thing, and this may seem kind of on the nose, Jeff's dad was a lawyer. He had a very narrow specialty, workers' comp cases for federal employees, very technical, not a lot of money in it. But my dad liked it because you go in the office, you Go pile through the paperwork, you get your work done, you go home. Jeff started working in his dad's office when he was just 13. He took a typing class at school, and his dad invited him to come take dictation. And over time, Jeff ended up doing much more than just typing. I remember shortly before he died, he even just was sitting there looking at a stack of papers. You know, Jeff, you could probably handle these for me at this point. So Jeff was pretty familiar with the law as a process, full of technical details from a young age. He followed his dad down another path, too. Jeff's dad was drafted into the Korean War, then spent 20 years in the military before starting his law practice. And after 9-11, Jeff did something that not every college-educated kid in L.A. thought to do. He enlisted. I just saw the news reports of Americans that were parachuting into Afghanistan. I was like, you know what? I'm 30, almost 30, and I'm perfectly fit, so I should be with them. So that was pretty easy for the recruiter when I walked in. He stayed for 12 years, did three tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, met his wife in Baghdad. She was a soldier, too. So, yeah, if you were going to cast somebody to be the type to make a personal practice of using small claims court to take on giants like Microsoft or UCLA and who might hope he can serve as an example to other people, Jeff is the person. Super familiar, super comfortable with the law as a process, jumping through hoops, filing papers in the right place at the right time, all that stuff. A confident, independent streak. Sure, I can play poker for a living. And a strong commitment to principle. I'm going to go enlist after 9-11 because I think it's the right thing to do. And I'm going to fight this bill and I'm going to win. And maybe I can teach other folks to stand up for their rights too. This is the teacher we've been waiting for. And here's his first lesson. The other side, no matter how big they are and no matter what they say to you, They don't actually get to make the rules, not the legal rules. One thing they always do is they always try to make it seem like their policies apply to you. They're like, well, no, our policy is blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't care. That doesn't, (laughs) uh, you know, contract law, the concepts of contract law and what I actually owe you, what a court would say I owe you is what applies. I don't care. I remember saying, okay, well, my policy is you pay me $100 every time you say something stupid. So does that apply to you? (laughs) If it does, you owe me about 400 bucks already. (laughs) You want to keep going? He says sometimes the person on the other side listens. 
Other times, he says, well, this is how we ended up in court with UCLA Hospital. When I talk to UCLA, I can't tell you how many times they would go, oh, let me explain how this works. Your insurance company allows us. I'm like, listen, listen. I understand how this works. <laughs> Stop misdirecting. You build too much. And how he got from that conversation to satisfaction? We've got the details, which are hilarious, and the lessons right after this. This episode of An Arm and a Leg is a co-production with Kaiser Health News. That's a nonprofit news service covering healthcare in America. Kaiser Health News is not affiliated with the big healthcare outfit Kaiser Permanente. We'll have a little more information about Kaiser Health News at the end of this episode. So, okay, Jeffrey Fox's fight with UCLA Hospital. The story starts about six years ago. Jeff's son, Richard, is three years old, gets a checkup. Doctor thinks maybe Richard's got a hernia, sends him for an ultrasound, which he gets 15 minutes in and out, and good news, he's okay. Then the bill comes. Yeah, they billed $2,448. Jeff is like, no way am I paying that. For one thing, it is way more than he's paid for similar services in the past at UCLA. He calls UCLA. He gets the whole condescending spiel. This is what we charge. This is what your insurance allows, blah, blah, blah. They just tell you things, hoping that you'll believe them and you'll go away. Not Jeff. But first, he starts by fact-checking himself, making sure his indignation was justified. Maybe $2,500 really is the going rate these days. Nope. A site called Healthcare Blue Book lets you plug in your zip code and tells you an average for whatever procedure you're shopping for. It says 518. He calls another big-name hospital, asks what they charge. They say 360. He also calls UCLA because they've got an office you can call to ask, what's the cash price on this procedure? I got the exact billing codes from the bill. And I called and I said, what do you charge for this? He calls three times, gets three different prices, and the highest one is less than a fifth of what's on his bill. So that's one. And then he thinks about his argument. Hey, charge what you want, but tell me if your prices are super high so I can decide. Otherwise, I should expect to pay the going rate. When he calls... He argues his point, but he also listens. He takes notes on their arguments. The strongest one, if they just wrote off the amount they were billing him, it would violate their contract with his insurance company. He calls his insurance company to check. I said, uh, is that right? And they said, yeah, but of course they can just resubmit for a lower amount. Jeff writes everything up in a letter. He tells them what he wants. Stop bugging him for this money and why. And it's strongly worded, formal, clear, legalistic. The word reasonable shows up a lot in phrases like any reasonable person and reasonable and customary. A month later, he gets a reply. Politely worded, it says, forget about it, pay up. Also, they keep sending bills, which now say, pay up or else we send you to collections and mess up your credit. Okay, it's on. And there's two things he's worried about. First, what's the actual legal theory here? Like, intuitively, it seems outrageous that the other side can just arbitrarily set a price without telling you first. But do courts actually recognize that? And I kind of love it that he went this far without actually knowing. So he Googles and he Googles and he finds a blog post by a law professor, Christopher Robertson, discussing open price contracts. And I talked with Chris last year for an episode of this show, and I just love the way he boils this issue down. Of course, you don't have to pay a number that the other side just invented. Um, you know, this is this is shooting fish in a barrel from a contract law perspective. Yeah, that's great. But Jeff's got another problem, a practical one. 
They are threatening to send him to collections, mess up his credit. And if he heads that off by paying the bill, doesn't that end things right there? Because legally he finds out there's something called the voluntary payment doctrine. You paid when you didn't have to, that's your problem. Jeff needs to show that he paid under protest, under duress. So here's one of my favorite parts. He goes to the billing office in person, asks to see the manager. He knew who I was by then. And uh, yeah, he takes me into this little private room where there's a desk and I give him the credit card. But I could see the relief in his body language because he was sick of my calls and everything. And it's just like, oh, good. We we won again. This guy's just going to pay that 1700 bucks. And I said, we're done. He said, yeah. I said, I don't owe you anything. He goes, nope, zero balance. Okay, here, um, I'd like you to sign this. Jeff hands the guy a letter demanding a refund and threatening to sue. And he holds it and he reads it and his face turns red and he just slams it down on the table and he, and he walks out and slams the door. Mission accomplished. Jeff has created a paper trail. Yes, he paid, but he immediately demanded a refund. He's not paying voluntarily. Now he's ready to sue. Here's where Jeff's experience with court comes in. Some lessons for us all. All the little technical, procedural stuff that trips people up. Like, you're suing somebody or a company? Even in small claims court, you've got to serve them. Give them official notice that they're a defendant. I sat there in small claims court. So many Every time I go to the hearing, there's somebody, they walk up and they're like, hey, the defendant's not here. And the judge is like, did you serve them? And the plaintiff goes, did I what? Like, <laughs> you have to serve them. I say, oh, I thought you guys told them I filed the case. No. No. Which means you have to know who to serve and at what address. In this case, Jeff says he found an address on Wilshire Boulevard where he's supposed to serve UCLA. It's not hard. It's not beyond the ability for anyone to do because you look them up in the Secretary of State's records and they're supposed to list their agent for service of process. Okay. Are you taking notes? I mean, Google this stuff for your own state. How do I serve the other party in small claims court? Or how does small claims court work in, like, I just looked up Illinois and Ohio, and I found guides to small claims court from Illinois Legal Aid and from the Ohio State Supreme Court. You get the idea. In some states, you may need to pay someone, like the sheriff's office, to serve the other side. And there's probably going to be court fees, too. You can ask the court to make the other side pay you back for all of that. But it's money up front. You're also going to need to write out your arguments. Jeff submitted a two-page statement, including a list of exhibits, evidence that he attached. The bills, the letters, the printouts from the Healthcare Blue Book, bunch of stuff. He's posted it to the web. We'll have a link. More tips from Jeff. Don't remind them. You know? I'll see you in court. You just file the case, serve it. If they lose track of it, that's their problem. Then you can win a default judgment. They didn't even show up to mount a defense. And also, even if they don't show up, it's not an automatic default. The judge will still make you explain. So come to court prepared. I just always imagine that the judge looks at my case and his first inclination is, what nonsense is this? And he decides to attack me. So I always want to have very calm and reasoned um, answers to any objections, even if they're kind of ridiculous. For this case, Jeff typed up four pages of well-organized notes for himself. And I had it in big type so I could have it on the table and even flip through it. He says the judge did grill him a bit and then said, yep, I'm awarding you this judgment. But that wasn't the end. Jeff still had to collect. And, oh, big surprise, they weren't eager to pay. He says they ignored him. But he's Jeffrey Fox, and he knows he's got another option. He writes them another letter. It said, if you don't pay up by date X, 
I will file a writ of execution with the sheriff who will then confiscate your computers and sell them at auction to satisfy this debt. This process can cost $1,500 or more in fees payable to the sheriff, which will be added to your judgment, meaning you may have to pay over $3,000. If anything I have written is not clear, please call me. And, um, <laughs> yeah, FedEx was knocking on my door a couple days later with the check. I love this so much. Jeff says, in retrospect, he didn't play things perfectly in this case. Like, for instance, he wrote that letter about bringing in the sheriff less than a month after the court hearing. And now he says that was a mistake. If they don't show up and you get a judgment, don't say anything for 30 days. Do not mail them and go, hey, sucker, you didn't show up. Now you owe me the money because they have 30 days to appeal. And they might go, oh, I didn't show up. And then they can file an appeal and say, I didn't show up because my grandma was in the hospital. Yeah, don't give them an opening. So, okay, always learning. In fact, Jeff wrote me after we talked, said, don't leave out some of the lessons learned here, including things he's done differently since having this experience. Like one, always ask the price upfront. If you can avoid landing in this situation, being chased for a ridiculous fee, that's better. Two, if they overcharge you and you decide to pay under duress, put your objections in writing first. That is part of your paper trail. And make sure the payment comes with a written indication that it's under duress. In Jeff's case, that was his letter saying, give me a refund right now or I'll sue you for it. And then let me add one other thing that I had to remind myself. You don't necessarily have to pay up front or even go to court to use small claims court against someone who's trying to bilk you. I've talked with folks who say they've used small claims court to make hospitals or other providers accept a reasonable payment instead of paying a super inflated amount and then suing for a refund. And they told me that a lot of times just the threat of small claims court, if you do it right, brings the other side around quick. You can hear all about that in the episode where we first talked with the law professor Christopher Robertson called Can They Freaking Do That? And we'll have a link from wherever you're listening right now. It is great. And it sounds easier than what Jeffrey Fox did here. But I think this story of the little guy fighting back, beating Goliath in court, and especially making sure he gets paid back by threatening to have the sheriff come and grab the hospital's computers. I mean, I love that. And I want other people to take heart from it and maybe take action. It might be a little bit fantastic to think that we're all going to rise up and file this flurry of small claims cases and (laughs) all these evil companies will reform their practices and then the credits roll. Yes, that is the movie I want us to be making right here. But yeah, probably not going to happen all at once. Still. For what it's worth, I just think it's the right thing to do. Don't, Don't let yourself get pushed around and take it all the way to the end. Amen. Next time on An Arm and a Leg, I've been saying for a while, this show is a school for financial self-defense. So I thought it would be a great idea to talk with an actual self-defense instructor, one of these trainers who teaches people, often women, how to defend themselves so if they're ever in a bad spot, they know how to respond. And physical confrontation skills like the kicks and the strikes, this is just one set of skills they teach. And to be clear, nobody's telling you to knee a bill collector in the nuts. But the underlying idea of these trainings seems like something we can all use, that you should get practiced in a repertoire of options and in deciding what strategy makes the most sense for a given situation in a given moment, keeping in mind the whole time that you are worth protecting and that you can do it. I mean, that seems really, really applicable. So 
our School for Financial Self-Defense brings in an actual self-defense teacher. That's next time on An Arm and a Leg. And before I go, I got a note this week from a listener who was like, hey, I'd like to support your show with a one-time donation instead of a monthly pledge on Patreon. Can I do that? And the answer is, yep, and it just got a whole lot easier. If you go to armandalegshow.com slash support, there's a simple form right there. You can use a credit card or PayPal, anything you like. It's super secure, super easy. And this is kind of exciting. Any donation you make in November or December is doubled. A campaign called Newsmatch is matching individual donations to hundreds of news outlets, including this one. Times are tough right now, and giving money away is not a reality for a lot of folks. Absolutely. But if you've been thinking you'd like to help this show out a bit, this is an amazing time to do it, because in November and December, you're literally giving us twice as much. That's armandalegshow.com slash support. Yes, we will still shout you out at the end of the show, unless you tell us not to. Either way, I'll catch you in two weeks. Till then. Take care of yourself. This episode of An Arm and a Leg was produced by me, Dan Weissman, and edited by Marion Wang. Daisy Rosario is our consulting managing producer. Adam Raymunda is our audio wizard. Our music is from Dave Weiner and Blue Dot Sessions. This season of An Arm and a Leg is a co-production with Kaiser Health News. That's a nonprofit news service about healthcare in America. That's an editorially independent program of the Kaiser Family Foundation. Kaiser Health News is not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente, the big healthcare outfit. They share an ancestor, this guy, Henry J. Kaiser. He had his hands in a lot of different stuff. He smelted aluminum and poured concrete and built ships. He died more than 50 years ago, and then he left half his money to the foundation that later created Kaiser Health News. You can learn more about him and Kaiser Health News at armandalegshow.com slash Kaiser. Diane Weber is national editor for broadcast, and Tanya English is senior editor for broadcast innovation at Kaiser Health News. They are editorial liaisons to this show. Thanks to Public Narrative, a Chicago-based group that helps journalists and nonprofits tell better stories for serving as our fiscal sponsor, allowing us to accept tax-exempt donations. You can learn more about Public Narrative at www.publicnarrative.org. Finally, Kaiser Health News has a new podcast of its own, which sounds pretty good. You'll hear some quick details from them in just a sec. But first, thank you to some of our new supporters on Patreon and now at armandalegshow.com slash support. Thanks this time to Jeannie Marcoux and Jerry. Thank you. I'm Sarah Jane Tribble. Kaiser Health News and St. Louis Public Radio are launching a new podcast called Where It Hurts. It's about the painful cracks in the American health system that leave people without the care they need. In rural America, hospitals that have been around for lifetimes are packing up and leaving. Season one is about what happens after a hospital closes. Join me for our new podcast, Where It Hurts. Subscribe now 